podcast. Today, I am so excited to have Dr. Tim Olbrich with us. He is a professor of pharmacy practice and associate dean of student success at the Northeast Ohio Medical University College of Pharmacy. He graduated from Ohio Northern with his doctor of pharmacy, then completed residency training in community and AMCARE at the Ohio State University College of Pharmacy. He paid off more than $200,000 in non-mortgage debt, and he's working to empower pharmacists and pharmacy students to take control of their financial future. He is the creator of the Your Financial Pharmacist blog, the co-host of Your Financial Pharmacist podcast, and the co-author of a fantastic book called The Seven Figure Pharmacist, How to Maximize Your Income, Eliminate Doubt, and Create Wealth. So welcome, Tim. Thank you so much for uh, having me. Excited to be here, and congratulations on what you're doing with the podcast. Great stuff. Thanks. Well, and I'm really excited. I know today is a little bit different because, I mean, you're an educator, obviously, but also just kind of a personal finance spin on things. And I told him I was going to do this before we got started, but I am a huge fan of the podcast, and I think everybody should go out and listen to your financial pharmacist podcast. They talk about really applicable topics and student loans, disability insurance, buying a house. I think the episode that really got me hooked in was there were several on couples and then also pharmacists who had paid off a ton of debt. And I learned about a pharmacist who had 18 rental properties. And, you know, just really, um, it's really cool to have personal finance advice specifically to our field. So I think what you're doing is fantastic. Yeah, thank you. And I'm actually, uh, you know, what, what's so fun about the topic is I feel like I get to live it while I'm teaching it as well. So right now, my, my wife and I are in a, in a transitionary state of jobs. And so we're going through the whole home selling buying. And so I'll probably have some new content coming out about that <laughs> as I live that uh, firsthand. So. Absolutely. Well, great. Well, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with you, but um, can you go ahead and tell us about yourself and maybe a little about your teaching style as well? Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned in the intro of the bio, I went to Ohio Northern University. So shout out to the Polar Bears, uh, State Residency <laughs> at Ohio State. And interesting path, you know, that I, I really went into residency thinking for sure, AmCare practice is where I want to be. Liked patient care, loved teaching and mentoring students. And that was kind of the aha moment for me. Um, and, to, and to be fully honest with your listeners, it took me a while to be okay with the reality that I just went through a PharmD program, just went through residency, and while I liked patient care, I really liked the mentorship and the teaching and the administrative aspects even more. And, you know, you kind of have this mindset all along that I'm going to do patient care, I'm going to do patient care, I'm going to do patient care, and then that shifts. And, and once I really accepted that and think accepted where I have the greatest impact and role, I really felt like my career took off from there. And so uh, when I was at Ohio State, I had some great mentors there and was really exposed to innovative teaching methodologies. One of my mentors there, I'll never forget, we had a, a faculty development session with the residents. She talked about this idea of evidence-based teaching. And as a resident, you know, hearing that for the first time, this was 2009, obviously in school you always hear about evidence-based medicine, evidence-based patient care. And I thought, wow, evidence-based teaching, approaching teaching with a scholarship way. I never really had thought about that. And that really opened up my eyes to scholarship of teaching and learning. And for me, that was a, a fundamental shift to say, you know, it wasn't just about coming into the classroom and, and being the sage on the stage and talking and hoping everybody was going to absorb all that great knowledge that, that I had uh, been able to give them, which obviously was was a false mindset to think I was going to take all this information and just dump it into their brains, right? And that really, for me, was a mindset shift to say, okay, what's the best practices around active learning, team-based learning, problem-based learning? And for me, it's all about facilitating a learning environment 
that it's adaptable to the, to the styles of the people that are in the room. And that really focuses on them as the learners and takes the attention off of me as the educator. And what I've come to realize is that can look different in, in any given class, any given level of learner, any given size of the class. And I think flexibility in the classroom for me is really, really important to say, yeah, you know, I have this topic, I have this much time, this is what I think I want to do, but I got to be ready to pivot. So if I get in that classroom and I see things aren't going well, if I really feel like we need to engage them in a different way, um, then I think we've got to make that move. So that, that tends to be my style as I've become more confident and comfortable in the classroom is to try to focus and get rid of the focus on myself and really try to shift the focus toward the learners in that setting. I think that's great. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, having that focus on them and that's really what I think active learning is all about. Absolutely. Like you said, it's not the person on the podium delivering the lecture and it's really adapting to who you're teaching. Um, so as you were going along from that time when you heard about evidence-based learning, evidence-based teaching, are there any resources that you looked into or is there, did you go through mentorship or any kind of websites, books, things like that that were helpful? Yeah. Yeah. I felt like it opened up a whole new world of just resources and things I didn't know were out there. So, you know, obviously I think about the academic journals in terms of AJPE, Currents in Pharmacy Teaching and Learning. Um, I had a faculty development person here at the university that kind of opened up some opportunities for fellowship training programs around academic medicine and teaching and learning. Um, you know, newsletters like the Faculty Focus newsletter uh, that's out there. And so all of a sudden it just what I think I had learned around evidence-based patient care, I was well-versed in the patient care literature and resources. It seemed to open up this whole other area of literature, research, and resources related to the scholarship of teaching and learning. And that term, SOTOL, or scholarship of teaching and learning, I had never heard before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that really was eye-opening to me. As, as a junior faculty member coming in, I felt like scholarships seemed so intimidating. Yeah. Um, you know, you hear sort of the, the publisher die uh, mentality. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden I thought, wow, like, wait a minute. Like, so you're telling me there's opportunities to do scholarship around innovative teaching or scholarship around uh, ways that students are learning in the classroom or developing new methodology with residents or trainees or now personal finance uh, research that I'm doing. And so that really was a shift for me. And, and some of those resources that I mentioned um, and I remember attending back in, I think, 2011, just a couple years after I started, there's a great conference out there that your listeners may or may not be aware of, the Lilly Teaching Conference. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it was in North Carolina one year, and a mentor kind of dragged me to that conference. <laughs> and what I loved about that conference was it was not pharmacy-specific. So it was lots of different professions, but it was about teaching and learning, period. It wasn't about just pharmacy teaching and learning, which was refreshing because I, I think coming into pharmacy education, uh, many of my colleagues here in our department, none of us have formal backgrounds in education, right? So we, we informally were taught in residency or other areas. And to hear from people that are that are experts in teaching and learning that's not specific to our discipline was really refreshing. It started to even open, open up my eyes to other disciplines, academic medicine and other areas where we can get literature and get resources beyond pharmacy. I think you make a great point. And that is something and I that I think even just beyond the health sciences field that, like you said, scholarship of teaching and learning can be across all fields. And I think specifically within health sciences, we all have similar learners. They're competitive. They need to learn practical knowledge. They, you know, there's a lot of similar characteristics across all health sciences. And so I think, like you said, whether it's academic medicine or any of those, 
resources, we can all, uh, whether you're nursing, pharmacy, medicine, faculty, can benefit from learning what other people are doing as far as innovative teaching strategies. Absolutely. Yes, definitely. Absolutely. So how did you pivot then into your personal finance realm? Yeah, that's actually a crazy story. And it's <laughs> funny how you look, you look back on things you're like, oh, it makes so much sense, right? But in the moment, you kind of feel like you're in this chaotic tailspin of like, where's my career actually going? Mm-hmm. You know? um, and, and for me, as I look back now, throughout my career since finishing residency and starting here at Neomed in 2009, I've always had a theme of professional development. I've done a lot of work with students around residency training, preparation for residency training, uh, helping mentor them through career choices. And as I think about personal finance, Personal finance to me is without question a part of professional development. And so I'm starting to really see all of this come together. And one of the things I'm, I'm slowly advocating for, and hopefully I can get your listeners on board, is that one of my long-term career goals is to get HTPE to recognize the accreditation standards that we need some financial literacy requirements in the PharmD curriculum. Absolutely. LCME has them in medicine, and I, I think we need to get ahead of this in terms of pharmacy. So... In terms of how I got to that path, I, I've always had a passion in personal finance. So, you know, if my, if my wife was here, she would tell you that I often am reading personal finance books and resources. I've just always been in awe of the topic and all the nuances and, and strategy. And I think for me, it was a school of hard knocks, you know, graduating $200,000 of debt. I made a lot of stupid mistakes, which I have chronicled on the blog and the podcast <laughs> and the book. And the reality is you learn through those mistakes and then you teach from those mistakes. Mm-hmm. And so as I paid off my $200,000 of debt, uh, I started blogging about it. And I reached out to a hundred of my closest friends and colleagues and said, Hey, I'm thinking about starting a personal finance blog for pharmacists, what do you think? Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the fear of failure is people are going to be, it's going to be crickets, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and literally, I think 97 of those people emailed me back probably and said, absolutely sign me up and, and can I tell some of my friends about it? And so that was the moment where I thought, okay, there's a need for this. And where I really felt like I was almost living on an island of this struggle of trying to figure this out of how to pay off all this debt and navigate this complicated new practitioner life with all these competing responsibilities. And my vision was, what if we created a community that empowered pharmacists to work together to learn from each other rather than feeling like they need to do it on their own? Because it was kind of this unsaid conversation that you make a great income, don't Mm -hmm. worry about this financial piece. And as I shared my own journey and was vulnerable with that journey, I kept hearing pharmacists say, oh my gosh, that's me, that's me. And I think I was giving people the permission to say, I'm stressed out about this. I'm struggling with this. This is hard. And once we can give the permission to have that conversation, now we can actually start working towards a solution and empowering one another. So the blog took off. That that became the seven-figure pharmacist book. Then the podcast launched a little bit over a year ago, mm-hmm. uh, and that really has grown in, into kind of a big community of, of pharmacist students, residents. That one of the one of the things that's been most rewarding to me is about three or four months ago we started a, a Facebook group for your financial pharmacist. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I really wanted to do is facilitate more conversation so that it wasn't just me divulging information about personal finance, just like we talked about in the classroom. How could we engage more of those individuals in the conversation? And for those that jump in that Facebook group now, what you'll see is somebody will post a question, something they're concerned about, something they're struggling with, a success they've had. And literally, before I can even get to responding it, 15 <laughs> other people are jumping in to help that person out. And that is so rewarding to watch to say that vision of facilitating 
uh, a community of people coming together, I think is, is becoming a reality. Uh, and there's nothing more rewarding than knowing that if we can do one thing to help people take some of the stress and burden of personal finance in their lives and make it specific to the pharmacy professional, then I think that's a win. I think that's fantastic. And I completely agree. I mean, in those communities too, it's kind of a safe space, like you said, to be vulnerable with your questions because we don't all have it figured out. You know, we don't all graduate with zero debt and we're able to buy a house for cash and we're able to, you know, invest perfectly in mutual funds. I mean, there's so much nuance to it, like you mentioned. And so having an area to ask those questions and get some great feedback is just fantastic. Yeah, and I think we've got to change the perception that we have it together because we don't. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm living it this month, so obviously I, I'm always trying to communicate to my listeners that I am a role model of that when it comes to personal finance, this is such a behavioral area. It doesn't matter if you don't have any debt and you're doing well with retirement, you're still prone to making mistakes. I mean, even just this month, as we're kind of in a transitionary period, we're struggling this month. Like, you know, we've got lots of activities and events and, and we're hosting a, a boy from Latvia and all, all these other things that are happening that, you know, it, it's not like, I don't want people to think, wow, like he's really got it together. You know, I, I think most of the time, maybe, but many of the time I just like anybody else are making mistakes and we have to have that permission to say, this is not one thing you figure out and you're done. This is a lifelong journey when it comes mm-hmm. to personal finance. And it's a, it's an area that you inch your way forward and over years, you look back and say those small progressions along the way have a significant compound effect over time, whether it's debt, investing, uh, cumulatively when it comes to home buying, insurance protection, like you mentioned before. This is such a multifactorial, complicated thing that we need to have accountability and community to be successful with this topic. And taking this back to the Farm D curriculum, this has to start all the way back, in my opinion. We have to be educating at least in the farm D curriculum, hopefully before that, but at least that's one area that we could have some control control over. I completely agree. And I think, like you said, just having that permission to not be perfect with it. And I really like that you guys also, you don't just focus on it's this way or the highway. You know, you have yeah. to uh, start out your month by saving this percent and live on the rest, or you have to do this really, really strict budget. You guys really approach it with, there. these are several different ways that you can approach whatever topic it is. Um, yeah, and I agree. I think that, you know, I mean, one of the statistics that I remember from an episode a long time ago of yours was that uh, I think it's that the graduating pharmacist has 135000 in student loans. Is that the number? You know, actually, actually, the average for the class of 2017 is 163. Oh, We're my gosh, it's gone up. Lots of uh, 2018 data. So, oh, my yeah, gosh. And what's crazy is, you know, I think we often look at that number and we don't, feel concerned about it because we keep leaning to say, well, pharmacists make great money. But what I'm always trying to look at is what's the debt to income ratio of a pharmacist and and are pharmacist salaries keeping up with what's happening in the debt loads? And the reality is they're not, and it's not even close. I mean, if you look at pharmacist salaries over the last five years, they're not keeping up with inflation, let alone the debt load. So what that essentially means is the purchasing power of a pharmacist's income is decreasing every year. Um, and so something's going to have to give about these debt loads. Yeah, 163 was for the class of 2017. We're still waiting for the, the 2018 data. And so let's say just from a faculty perspective, so I think about one of my advisees who I know you know, has been in school for a while and at her last advising mentioned that she wanted to go to medical school. I have no idea how much debt she has, but probably a ton. Do you have any advice for how 
faculty, whether it is through a specific course or um, just through mentoring, we can talk to students about this while they're in the process? Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think this, is, this, this hits home on the point I made earlier that personal finance has to be a part of the broader personal development conversation, right? And so as I think about what's going on with ACP and co-curricular and all these movements, that this is that content, right? This yeah. has to be involved because if I'm sitting down with, let's say, student A, and they're fifty thousand dollars in debt, and they want to pursue, you know, a PhD or another degree, and they're going to delay employment. That's very different than if I'm sitting down with student B, and they have maybe a situation where they have dependents and they have two hundred fifty thousand dollars of debt, and they're a little bit later in their career and they're struggling in other areas. You can't look at those career decisions in the same way, right? Mm-hmm. It's so. What I'm really trying to advocate for, for me, in a perfect situation, and one of the things we're trying to do here at Neomed with our new co-curricular program that we're launching with a new curriculum in the fall 2019 is to have a touch point in personal finance, at least one touch point every semester across the four years. Because, you know, what we're doing now currently is we have a personal finance elective in our second and third year, which is a great oh, neat. start. Yeah. Uh, and then I also do a four hour session with our graduating students at Capstone. Now, that's great. But what I hear from the graduating students is, Holy cow, I wish I would have heard this earlier. That's <laughs> sure. a lot, right? right. Um, and so as I think about the the evolution of personal finance and the progression of it, you know, maybe in the first year we introduced some of the things like what's the anatomy of a student loan, understanding principal mm-hmm. interests and how it's calculated, understanding basics of budgeting, goal setting. And then as you go throughout the second, third, and fourth year, you start to layer on those topics along the way. But we're a little bit more proactive instead of reactive. You know, rather than say, oh, your graduation, you have $220,000 of debt, best of luck. Exactly. You know, so to answer your question, if, if we are doing that along the way and the faculty are understanding what's happening, then we can tie that with the career development conversations. Mm-hmm. So what I'm thinking is here at Neomed, uh, we actually have a, a professional development advising team program called our PDAP program, where students are paired with a group of about six to eight students and a clinical advisor all the way throughout their four years. Well, if, if we know that there's some consistent themes in, say, personal finance across four years, now we can embed that when that clinical advisors meeting with their small group or one-on-one, they can start to fold those personal finance conversations into the broader career advising that's happening. Um, so I think there's strategies that colleges can do. If, if, if somebody's listening as a college and you have nothing right now, I think the easiest place to start is to say, is there an opportunity at Capstone course? There's an opportunity to pair this with a student organization type of an event. Better yet, maybe a personal finance elective, and better yet, something that's longitudinal in every semester along the way. Absolutely. I think that's fantastic because, yeah, I know our graduates get personal finance, but like you said, it's in the fourth year. And so by then, it's kind of uh, almost a little too late. It's still good to have, certainly, but by then, they've already made those decisions typically. I think one thing that I try to recommend to my advisees, I mean, I think a lot of personal finance comes from your own mistakes. And so I know for me, I... uh, deferred my loans during residency. Um, During my first year, I did. During my second year, I didn't. And while that was convenient at the time, I mean, the amount of interest that grew was just insane. So... Yeah, I try to advise that against that. a lot, and, and um, I made some similar mistakes as well. And one, one of the things I'm seeing a lot of is the focus on the monthly payment or the deferment during uh, the residency time period without an understanding of how the interest is calculated. Mm-hmm. And so I'm seeing a lot of graduates that maybe come out with a 200, 
And at the end of two years of residency, they now have 220 or 230 because of how the interest is occurring. And so and the other thing I'm seeing a lot of, and I've been joking recently, that the grace period is everything but gracious because <laughs> what's happening during the grace period is your unsubsidized loans, which is all of your farming loans likely, those are occurring interest. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's convenient that you don't have to make a payment, but oh, by the way, your loan balance is going up. So there has to be intentionality to choose the right student loan repayment option. And mm -hmm. uh, choosing that option can be the difference of 50, 60, 70, 80, even $100,000 uh, versus another option. But we can't expect our graduates to go through one exit counseling session mm -hmm. and all of a sudden have all the tools and knowledge to be ready to choose the best option. You know, before they choose that option, they have to know what interest is. They have to understand capitalization. They have to know the loan repayment options. So that's where I think advocating for a longitudinal approach to personal finance is really the, the way we need to go if we're going to help be the, help them be successful. And if there's any deans listening out there, <laughs> what I would advocate for is I did a recent survey of new practitioners in Ohio, and one thing we're seeing is somewhat of a disgruntled attitude back towards our alma mater because of the student debt load. Yeah. Now, that fair? Is it not? We could debate that on a, on a whole other episode. But the reality is, if they're bitter about it, they're less likely to be engaged in alumni, they're less likely to be giving back to that institution, both in time and in money. So I think it's in our obligation, regardless of that, to help them along this journey, because it's stressful enough when you think about the magnitude of what they're facing upon graduation. I think that's a great point. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, like you said, whether it's right or wrong, that's what the attitude of a lot of them have, just given how much this debt, and it, I think it shows that this debt affects their daily life and their thoughts about giving and giving back and things like that. So absolutely, I think that's great. So with all the things that you do, what is your favorite part of your job? Yeah, you know, for me, it's, it's always working with students one-on-one. -on -one. So I do a lot of uh, professional career development with students, uh, and I'm ob obviously able to pull in the personal finance piece of the conversation, which I love. But for me, there's no more rewarding day when I walk away and you can see that student have the aha moment of, you know, I, I love to ask challenging, probing questions to students. You know, one of, one of the trends I'm seeing among students is a feeling or a pressure to pursue a career path regardless of of what that's, if they really want to do that path. Most notably, I'm feeling that in residency. So I hear a lot of students saying, you know, I need to do residency. And so I'm really trying to ask them some good questions about, you know, tell me, tell me the things that get you most excited on your experiential rotations. Tell me the things that, that frustrate you. Let's talk about for you in five years, what does success look like? Not only professionally, but what does success for you look like personally? What else is going on in your life? What are the things that are most important to you? And when I can sit with a student across the table and see that aha moment of deep breath, I'm looking at the whole picture, and here's the path that I'm gonna take, and I feel like I have clarity around that path, inclusive of the personal finance piece. To me, I walk away and really feel like that was a really, really good day. So that one-on-one -on -one student, that one-on-one -on -one interaction with residents for me, is definitely the most rewarding part of my job. I completely agree. I think career development can be such an important part and such a rewarding part. I think one of the conversations, similarly, big picture that I have try to have with students is that I think a lot of them think that, and, and I did too, but that your first job is your forever job. You know, whatever you decide, sure. if it's residency or if it's community or if it's home health or long-term care, whatever it is, that that's what you're going to do forever. And so I encourage them to think about that, you know, not having the perfect job, but thinking about, 
you know, trying to give them the advice that every job is going to have stressors, but as pharmacists, we are so lucky to have the flexibility to pick what stressors we want, you know, or what stressors that we can tolerate. Uh, because it, yeah. then by thinking about those, everything else that you want about the job will still be really positive. So, um, you know, whether that's if you, if it stresses you out to have that patient insurance interaction or if it stresses you out to have students, I think that kind of can also guide you to where you may want to end up. Yeah, I think there's great ways in there. I had a mentor once tell me that, um, which is which is obviously true, that no matter what job you're in, there's going to be a percentage of your job that, you know, doesn't necessarily feel as rewarding as other parts of it. And I'm a big believer in the strengths-based approach, identifying what you're best at and aligning your strengths with the, the responsibilities and the roles that you have in your job. So what I'm always mentally thinking about is, is 80% of the time, I want to really feel like I'm hitting on all cylinders. Mm-hmm. And those for me are the moments where, I leave a day, regardless of it being a long day, I leave a day and I feel energized because I was living in my strengths. But no matter what, you're going to have a percentage of your time that may not align with that. And it's, it's to your point, figuring out exactly where that is, what the percentage is. I think the other thing you said, which is really wise, is about that your first job isn't your forever job. So, you know, I'm not, I'm 10 years into my career. I'm getting ready to enter my fourth evolution of my career. Uh, <laughs> and I could have never predicted any one of those along the way, but every one of those led to a different experience, a different skill set, and opened up a different door and exposed me to something I couldn't have anticipated, you know, one step behind that. So I think having that open mind and knowing that whatever you enter into, you do it well, you figure out what you like, you figure out that maybe there is you don't like, you know, you seek the mentors, you put yourself in the positions that are going to challenge you, you reflect on those experiences, you learn from those, and something else is going to come along the way, you're just going to continue to build on that over time. Absolutely. And so since you mentioned this is your fourth evolution, going back to that first day, or if you have a resident who is starting their first day in this job, in academia, in this career path, what insight do you wish you had on your first day that you know now? Yeah, you know, one of the things I think that is is so critical, and I'm grateful that I had a mentor that really held my hand through this, is as a new faculty member, especially a, a shared faculty, we're trying to balance practice and teaching and research and all the things that are involved, is the collegiality and the network and the relationship building and the collaboration piece to me is everything. And I think when I started coming from a residency mindset, there's that there's that tendency to think everything I have to do myself, right? Because during residency, you know, yes, you may have collaborators, but the reality is everything falls on your back. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of the mentality of residency training is that you have to own a research project all of it from beginning to end, right? Mm-hmm. And I quickly realized, like, oh my goodness, I'm never going to be successful in scholarship. I think I'm going to be doing everything from my theater publication. I'm only going to get done so much, right? Right. And so when it came to scholarship, quickly realizing, you know, I need to form research networks, form research collaborations, form teams around me, uh, let go of the idea that I have to do 100%, be okay with only doing 20% and leveraging other people. Um, and then as I think about just relationship building, I had, a, I had a mentor tell me very early on that don't get so caught up in your work that you lose sight of the importance of getting out, walking around the office, building relationships with people because every collaboration you have is going to lean on those relationships, getting involved in organizations, getting involved uh, with other faculty and, and forming those connections. And so one of the uh, articles that I was given um, very early on when I started my career here was all about getting a quick start in academia. And one of the characteristics of getting a quick start was forming these collaborations and forming this network very early on and not feeling like you need to do it all yourself. 
I think that's so great. And no one has brought that up so far, but I think you're exactly right. In residency, it's expected you own it, you're in charge of it from IRB to publication. And you're absolutely right. You have, and I think that's why it's so great when senior faculty recognize that in someone who's just starting and are willing to open the door and say, hey, do you want to collaborate on this? Do you want to, you know, build on this or present on this with me? So I think that's a great point. Well, going there overall, what is your prescription for life, success, happiness in this job and in general? Oh, that's a loaded question, right? Um, you know, for, for me, I'm a big believer in um, goal setting. And one of the things I often share with my students is, and, and for your listeners, I would say the same thing. If you've never taken time to get very specific with your own goals, both professionally and personally, the power of doing that is incredible. And, and we preach to our patients the value of goal setting, being specific and measurable and time oriented and all those things. Mm-hmm. And one of the activities I have my students do is that I have them take a piece of paper, fold it so you have four quadrants and write down the four most important areas of your life, professional being one of those, but the other three are to be determined. It could be financial. Hopefully I can convince your listeners of that. <laughs> it could be uh, family, it could be spiritual, it could be health, whatever are those areas. And Fast forward five years, and the situation is that in five years from now, somebody kind of approaches you and says, hey, how's life going? And your answer is, you know what? Life's going great. It's going better than it's ever gone before. And the activity is write down what is happening in each of those four areas that makes you say life's going great, better than ever before, in all of the different areas of your life. Then from there, you start to get specific today and say, Okay, if I were to say five years from now, when it comes to my personal finances, that life's really good if these things are happening. Maybe I have no more student loans. Maybe I'm saving 15% of my income for retirement. I got 20% down on a home, whatever it be. What do I need to do today? What specific goal do I need to be doing today to start working towards that five-year goal? Maybe it's small. Maybe it's starting an emergency fund. Maybe it's starting with putting your student loans on auto pay, whatever it be. Um, And then the second piece of this is to look at those goals each and every day because there's incredible power when you look at your goals each and every day. It's the power of positive thinking. The second thing for me that's the key to success is a morning routine. And I'm a big morning person. And I would reference your listeners to a book called The Miracle Morning if they've never read it before. And it talks about setting and establishing a morning routine that really defines your day rather than the day defining what you're going to do. So what's our natural tendency? We wake up. Our smartphones by our bed. Mm-hmm. We start react. We start reacting to these messages and these <laughs> meeting notifications. We have grand visions for the day, and that gets derailed in five minutes. <laughs> exactly. Right? And for me, a good day is when I get up at five fifteen, five thirty before my kids are up. I've got an hour and a half to kind of work through some very important things that. For me, if I can get those things done, it's going to be a great day. So reviewing my goals, maybe spending 15 minutes reading something that I'm I'm passionate about reading professional development-wise. Maybe it's meditation or prayer or a little bit of a workout. Something that you say, I'm going to start this day and I'm going to take control this day rather than reacting to what comes from you. Uh, and, And all of a sudden you start your work day and you're like, holy cow, I've gotten an unbelievable <laughs> amount of things done. And even if things derail throughout the workday, you've already set those things aside that you've already accomplished as a priority. So those two things, goal setting and morning routine for me are, are critically important. That is fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much yeah. for being a part of our podcast. And everyone should go and listen to Tim's Your Financial Pharmacist podcast and read The Seven Figure Pharmacist. 
Thank you so much. And if there's any uh, educators out there uh, listening, which I'm sure there are many of them are, we work with lots of colleges of pharmacy doing sessions with the students. So feel free to reach out to us, info at yourfinancialpharmacist.com. Thank you so much for having me. Perfect. Thank you.